Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. <clears throat> my guest today, a periodic voice on this program is the radical intellectual and cultural critic Henry Giroux. Giroux is university professor for scholarship in the public interest and Paolo Freire distinguished scholar in critical pedagogy at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He is the author of numerous titles that include America at War with Self, On Critical Pedagogy, American Nightmare Facing the Challenge of Fascism, and Race, Politics, and Pandemic Pedagogy, Education at a Time of Crisis. His latest is Insurrections, Education in an Age of Counter-Revolutionary Politics, which came out in paper this past January. Henry Drew is also a contributing editor to the online journal Truth Out, and his essays and interventions, his essay interventions and commentaries have also appeared on a number of other sites. Today, we'll be discussing his recent Truth Out piece on the right wing's dirty war against history and education. Henry Giroux, as always, welcome back to WORT. Do we have Henry there? Yes, sorry. <laughs> Hi, Alan. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the program. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you're there too, Henry. Thank you. Um, in the intro to your April Truth Out piece, you state that at the core of all authoritarian regimes is a politics of disappearance. What is that? What do you mean when you use the term? Well, I, I use the term disappearance because it has a certain political edge to it that's rooted in a, in a history that many people are unaware of. And that is in all authoritarian regimes tend to engage in a politics in which not only do ideas and knowledge and books disappear, but people disappear. And they disappear under the rubric of a, a kind of fascist politics in which anything that is op opposes the regime basically is charted for uh, what I call uh, terminal exclusion. And I, I wanted to link that history, of course, to what we see going on today and to, see, and, and to offer a language that really illuminates in some fundamental way how dangerous many of the policies are that we're, we're engaging in. You say that in the contemporary U.S., this authoritarian politics of disappearance manifests itself in new ways every week. What are some recent examples? What immediately comes to mind when, when you talk about this politics of disappearance? I mean, some of them are obvious, right? I mean, some of, some of them, I mean, you, if you look at what Ron DeSantis is doing along with Abbott and Texas and others, you know, the banning of books, uh, you know, the, the, the war on, on librarians, uh, the, the attempt to basically eliminate educators who believe that critical education is fundamental to a democracy, the war on trans people, make them disappear, make their history disappear, make the history of slavery, the history of racial struggle disappear, disappear, doing everything they can to make any notion of resistance that offers a challenge to the kind of authoritarian politics in which they're putting into place is part of a politics of disappearance. It's, it's, it's the modern day version of what we saw uh, have seen throughout history, whether we're talking about the war on indigenous peoples or we're talking about slavery or we're talking about Jim Crow or what we saw in uh, Germany in the, in the Third Reich in the 1930s. Uh, this is, there's an alignment and a similarity there that echoes history that it seems to me is, is crucial not to forget. But one more thing about the politics of disappearance, and that is it's intimately related to the disappearance of historical memory. 
And it seems to me that when memory disappears, all of a sudden what we have is the chokehold of what I call depoliticization. People lose their sense of agency. They lose their sense of being in the world. They lose their sense of how to be informed by the past and hence are more susceptible to a politics of uh, fragmentation, a politics of hate, and a politics of censorship. And, and of course, tied to that is this move afoot uh, here in Wisconsin and elsewhere by legislators to, well, legislate curriculum, uh, to legislate what, what is being taught, what should be taught according to them at all levels from grade school to the university, and of course, the offensive against critical race theory of this past year. I mean, I, I think that what we need to understand is that there are two two forces at work here that are interconnected. First of all, m- most of this is really an attack on public education and public goods and the common good. That's basically what it is. Secondly, it's an attack on those people, those histories, those ideas, those social relationships, those values that basically expand the notions of equity, justice, and, and, and de- democratic possibilities. And so it, it seems to me when you put those two together, it's not just an attack on, for instance, African-American history. It's an attack on critical thought itself, coupled with an attack on those groups that are seen as in opposition to this white Christian nationalist conception of what the nation should be. Uh, and, 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 I, and I think until we put those all in a context and see them as being interrelated, we have a tendency to sort of isolate these problems and say, well, this is just about censorship. It's not about censorship completely. It's also about an attack on the public goods, the common good, and democracy itself. You refer to the historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat and her insightful commentary and warning on how right-wing authoritarian uh, actions against education in the past created a template for for a, um, a excuse me uh, created a template for a politics of disappearance aimed at faculty, staff, and students. What else does Ben Giat tell us about well about the relationship between disappearing people and disappearing areas of knowledge? I think that what she's trying to say is that what are, what we see among authoritarian nations and societies and in the appearance of strongmen is that they basically are engaged in a form of social engineering that in some way seals off their power from accountability and at the same time uh, are very selective often about what they want to see disappear. I mean, she, she talks about how Pinochet in, uh, in Chile, they eliminated philosophy and sociology departments. Uh, she talks about how in Germany, you know, uh, Jews and critical intellectuals and communists and Marxists were simply both thrown out of the universities, fired, and in some ways jailed and then exterminated. And I, and I think that she's really focusing on how these campuses are turned into citadels of fear and mistrust, but also become symbols of what this model of society would look like that authoritarians are striving for. They're basically indoctrination factories. That's what they've become. They're not about education at all uh, in, in the true sense of the term. They're basically about creating a sense of conformity, a sense of passivity that puts up with the capitalist order, that puts up with savage capitalism, that believes that you don't need social programs, you don't need social provisions, and you don't need public goods. And that not only do you not need them, that the fragmentation and alienation that we feel in this country, produced by this, what I call gangster capitalism, then is sort of those fractured identities that emerge, are then organized into a community, organized around enemies. And the enemies, we know who they are. They're black people, they're women, they're women's reproductive rights, uh, they're trans people. I mean, a whole range of groups who now don't fit into a model of what it means to be, if I may put it bluntly, to what it means to be a white Christian nationalist American. This is an elimination policy. And, and, and of course, at the, the under the baseline of so much of this is, is a violence, a violence and hatred that become even more entrenched organizing principles of U.S. society. Um, you use the phrase uh, uh, a po- political culture of hyper punitiveness and brutality that has spread. What, what has been the effect of that? 
I, I think that what, 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 what that means, and I'll, I'll put it in more simple terms, I think that as, as the social state collapses and the punitive state emerges, all, more and more areas are now criminalized rather than address the social problems that need, to be, that need to be in some way taken care of and resolved. So what do we do? We criminalize librarians who basically refuse, uh, for instance, to not teach or put books in their, in their libraries uh, that, they, that the far right opposes. We see schools being modeled after prisons. We see social behavior increasingly criminalized. Uh, you know, if you provide water for people who are voting, uh, you know, that's a crime. We, 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 we see increasingly a repressive state turning a whole range of social relations that are basically central to a democracy to in, into basically what we would call criminal activities. So you have this criminogenic environment emerging based on a notion of repression that t tries to hide behind what I call a notion of paralegality. Uh, you know, and, and of course, we've seen the laws being passed here, whether in Texas or whether in Idaho or whether they're in uh, Florida. Uh, and increasingly, I, I mean, think about DeSantis, you know, rounding up seven or eight African-Americans who were once in prison claiming that they violated voting laws when, in fact, they didn't at all. And then parading them in, in front of the cameras and, as a public relations show. I mean, we've, we just, this is not the first time we've seen this, but what we're seeing now is not just a demonization of particular groups, we're seeing the criminalization of their behavior. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to see, uh, to, to observe, because we know where that goes next. If you look at history, you, you go from the, from, the, from the criminalization of behavior to imprisoning people, and then you go to exterminating them. And I don't think I'm being hyper, hyper uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. I think we're dealing with a mindset here that is so profoundly orthodox, reactionary, and regressive uh, that the, the, the danger that we find ourselves in today is, is almost as great as the danger that I think people in Berlin found themselves in in 1932. You're listening to cultural critic and public intellectual Henry Giroux. Uh, we're talking about, well, about our contemporary world We'll be opening up the phone lines per usual at the half hour at 608-256-2001 if you want to join with a conversation, a question, a comment for our guest today, Henry Giroux. Uh, please feel free. Talk about the, that, the relationship to what you just laid out to this ongoing militarization of civil society in culture at all levels, this militarization of the mind, this ideological offensive? I mean, I, I think that what, what we're seeing, you know, you, if you take the, a language that is rooted in military culture, for instance, in militarization, I mean, you have now the weaponization of language. You have the rise of the carceral state. You have the rise of paramilitary groups all over the country. You have the, the, a language in which the truth collapses into a kind of irrationality that basically posits anybody who disagrees with you as the enemy. Uh, you have a culture that thrives on violence, not only in terms of its the political culture, but also in terms of the culture in general. I mean, entertainment in this country is basically a bloodletting sport. Uh, the news has become increasingly a bloodletting sport. And so it, it seems to me that violence becomes an ideal that seems to suggest it's the only standard we have left for basically dealing with social problems. And increasingly, it celebrates what we might call the paramilitarization of the police, the emergence of neo-fascist groups in, from the margins to the centers of power, an ex-president who celebrates these groups, and Nazis appearing all over the country, overtly celebrating themselves in their anti-Semitism. You have rock stars now appearing on in television and some going to dinner with, of course, with former President Donald Trump, who are deeply rooted anti-Semitic. And none of this really gets taken up in a way that's alarming. You know, it, it seems to be so fundamental to a culture of violence that is deeply ingrained in the United States that has now become an organizing principle of society, as opposed to something that was once on the margins and could be in some way uh, analyzed and criticized 
as being at odds with anything we might call a democratic society and culture. You argue that in an age of organized forgetting, the politics of disappearance has been removed from history. What do you mean by that? What do you well, see I, going on? I think in the most obvious sense that uh, when you have the banning of books, when you have the banning of historical narratives, when you have history, when history becomes essentially whitewashed uh, in, in the interest of, of neo-fascist groups, when you have uh, a culture that thrives on immediacy, when, when you have the privatization of everything, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that all the institutions for which history would be crucial to both understand and to reproduce and to interrogate are both under assault and begin to disappear. I, I mean, if you if you look at the reports coming out about education today that just came out yesterday from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, they say, well, only 13% of junior high school students are proficient in U.S. history. Well, that's, that's maybe true, but what's really important here is the backdrop. And the backdrop is they're not allowed to learn certain histories. You know, those histories are being banned. Uh, historical memory is not a fundamental part of the American curriculum. Uh, historical amnesia is far more important than historical consciousness because historical consciousness is dangerous. Historical consciousness uh, resurrects the contradictions in American society that would need to be addressed if they really, if American society really wants to take itself seriously as a democracy. And of course, the far right, the neo-Nazis, uh, these utterly insane politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, that's the last thing that they want. And so I think that history has become the enemy of justice in, in, in many ways. And it's, and it's correlated with, with justice. And I think in that sense, everything is being done to create what I call a society of organized forgetting. You know, Henry Giroux, you point out that, that white supremacist politicians have not fully embraced historical tools of institutional repression, that instead they've resorted to an updated ideological and pedago pedagogical version of the dirty war, um, and it, an offensive not conducted exclusively through the naked force, forces of repression, but by engaging in a concerted politics of disappearance and silencing. You know, folks have this notion, many of us have a, a notion of fascism as, as this brute force, this open violence, uh, uh, you know, the end game as, as such. But you're saying something different, that there's this ideological dirty war going on, uh, and, and that's something that we have to be mindful of all the time. I think there are, there are a couple of things that I'm saying here, and, I, and, I, and of course, a number of a number of people have said it in the past. A number of writers have said it in the past. If fascism comes to America, as they once said, it'll be wrapped in the American flag. You're not necessarily going to have uh, just people dressed in Gestapo uniforms, you know, running around the country, sort of beating people up. Uh, but I, but I also, and so I, I think that you know, fascism in, in some way is present in every society, and it tends to adapt to that society in a way to figure out or to work itself out in ways to become convincing, and in some ways to disguise itself. But I think there's also something else at work here. I think that in the last 50 years, we've seen an enormous revolution in the cultural sphere. And the cultural sphere has now become weaponized in ways that could only take place under strictly authoritarian forms. And in this case, it's the concentration of wealth and power in relatively few hands. Capitalism has reached its end point. And its end point now is it no longer can live up to the promises that it once argued for, whether we're talking about you know, social mobility or we're talking about a small measure of equality. It can't do that anymore. So now what it does is it turns to culture, the cultural apparatuses, whether we're talking about you know, Fox News or the mainstream media. And inherent in this cultural apparatus is an enormous attempt in many ways to create the conditions for fascism whether we're talking about the normalization of fascism by CNN, who soon will give uh, former President Trump uh, uh, an opportunity to engage with an audience, or whether we're, we're talking about Fox News, which is really the American version of Pravda. Uh, and, and in a sense, that aura of ideological poison in some way has become a collective assassin of memory. It's become an attempt to erase history, 
morality, social cost, all the ethical and social responsibly virtues and values that matter. And I, and I think this is not hard to figure out. I, you know, as Adorno once said, if you really want to talk about fascism, talk about capitalism. And he was right. I mean, we've reached an end point. The inequality in this country today is so overwhelming, so overwhelming that it drives everything. And now what it's driving is a culture so poisonous, what I call a poison culture, absolutely infused with a couple of assumptions that depoliticize people. All problems are individual. If you're not white, you're the enemy. Uh, the ability to put things in a context and try to understand how they work is basically unacceptable. The anti-intellectualism, the, the removal of history from any kind of critical context, and most importantly, the death of institutions that represent the public good. Once they go, you no longer have an informed citizenry. And when you don't have an informed citizenry, Alan, you don't have a democracy. John Dewey straight out, and he was right. And I think that's the change that we've seen. We, we have a new political cultural formation in this country, and it's embraced by those people who are driving a collective mass consciousness that is really not, they're nothing more than disimagination machines. That's what they are. And they believe in a mass consciousness in which people would become incapable of making the judgments, understanding history, and engaging in political activities on a mass level that would be able to change this country. Henry Giroux, take that a little deeper. What do you mean when you say you've used the term uh, uh, in your writing and on, on the air here in the past, disimagination machines? Talk about the, that for a second. A, a disimagination machine is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a propaganda, a cultural apparatus that basically does everything it can to depoliticize people and to limit not only what it would mean for them to imagine what a different world would be like, but also to limit the very nature of the world they live in. It, 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 it promotes what, what, what we call fractured identities. You know, it separates communities. It, it destroys communities. But then the only communities that they really offer are communities sort of organized around hate, disdain, dehumanization, fear, anxiety. And hence, these disimagination machines are not just pedagogical tools, which, of course, they are. They're educational tools. But the role of education being central to politics by virtue of these cultural apparatuses, everything from the social media uh, to channel news, uh, you know, I mean, they now function in such a concerted way to reproduce a level of massive illiteracy. This imagination machines are machines of massive illiteracy. They're machines engineered towards social death. They're machines that basically disrespect and undermine any sense of critical agency, and they machines that hate the common good. And if I may say so, finally, they're machines that you cannot separate from the concentration of wealth, power, and, uh, and, and finance. You're listening, again, you're listening to public intellectual, cultural critic, analyst of the world we're in, Henry Giroux. I want to open up the phone lines if you have a question, a comment, an observation for Henry Giroux today. Give us a call again at 608 256 2001. Henry Giroux, there's an ongoing management of, you write that there's an ongoing management of terror directed at the American public. It is now organized through a systemic attack on civic culture critical education and historical consciousness, which you've touched on. But go deeper with that. Talk about some of its elements or, or facets, if you will, the forms of domination that re employ rep repressive pedagogical models. Well, I, I, I mean, you know, in the first instance, it seems to me that what those models do is attempt, uh, uh, basically drive a kind of anti-intellectualism in which the distinction between what's true and what's false, what's, what, what is informed judgment and what isn't, begins to collapse. And so they create an aura of irrationality in which it becomes very difficult for people to really not only recognize evil, uh, but to exercise a sense of social responsibility. They also serve as machineries of mystification in that they reproduce the assumption that, for instance, the, the, the long-standing liberal, neoliberal assumption of meritocracy, 
you know, that whatever problems we have, we're responsible for. So all systemic relationships disappear. Uh, the ability for people to translate private troubles into longer, into wider social social considerations all of a sudden disappears. They, they, they also, you know, the, the attack on, on critical consciousness in, in many ways is also one that promotes what I call a repressive pedagogy of utter conformity. Uh, you know, what, what, you, know you, you see it in the standardized testing in schools. You see it in the madness over empiricism. Everything that isn't measured isn't worthwhile. You see it in the refusal of a, a, a government to recognize that economic activity has to be linked to social cost. And if it doesn't, you're in the abyss of social destruction. So it, it seems to me that you have at one level questions regarding what elements are at work that allow people to think critically, to have a sense of agency, and to act collectively. Secondly, there's the issue, what institutions are being destroyed that make that possible? Uh, and, and I guess thirdly, in, in what way does the notion of the imagination become so denatured, denuded, that it's almost impossible for people to imagine there's a life outside of neoliberal fascism, or there's a life outside of the extremities of capitalism, or there's a life outside of a guy like Ron DeSantis. I mean, you know, I grew up in the 60s. It's, it's hard to imagine Ron DeSantis. It would, it would have been impossible to imagine him in the 1960s. And this is a guy who utters such a nonsense, such regressive nonsense. I mean, he's basically... He's wrong. He's, he, he's, he was born in the wrong period. You know, he should have been. He should be alive in 1930s, and and, uh, and under the Fourth Reich, he would have done well, probably better than he will here. But the fact of the matter is that you don't have a massive response to this. It says something about the way in which a certain form of ignorance has gained a kind of ideological and political currency that has really, in some way, undermined. And it's not destroyed, but undermine the virtues of critical thought and an informed public in the interest of a broader democracy. Henry, you, you write that the fascist disappearance of bodies in a systemic and lethal manner has a long history, and its connection to current practices of disappearance are crucial to understand. Talk about that. That is the link between the two. Can I hear that again? The link between between the, the that that older history of fascist disappearance of bodies in a systemic and lethal manner, and its connection to current practices of disappearance, yes. yeah. uh, you say they're crucial to understand. I, I I think that when we lose sight of history, it becomes impossible to understand the present in light of what's happened in the past. The past no longer informs the present so that when we see certain alignments, certain echoes of history that are disturbing, we can recognize them, address them, and we have some sort of sense of what their consequences are. When that history begins to be erased, when memory itself becomes the, 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 the object of attack by the assassins of history, it's in, it seems to me that you all of a sudden find yourself engulfed in a present in which there, 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 there is, there's no guidelines by which to understand, you know, how this has happened before, what it means and where it might lead. And so what it does is it not only depoliticizes people, it makes historical consciousness, it's not history itself, irrelevant. You know, the old adage, you know, if you, if you don't read history critically, you, you tend to repeat it. You know, we now see that being worked through in the United States and in Turkey and in Hungary and uh, Italy and other places where the attack on education and on historical consciousness and memory is so profound in all of these fascist, neo-fascist countries that we have to ask ourselves, what happened in history that would allow us to name this for what it's worth? How can we name this in ways in which we can recognize that it's happened before? And because it's happened before, we should both be terrified and we should, we should acknowledge what it is we're going to have to do to deal with it. There's a section of, of your essay in which you talk about the GOP cultural wars and the new McCarthyism. Uh, you, you, you write that evidence of the current politics of disappearance is on full display in the ultra-right-wing educational policies promoted by Trump and DeSantis, as, as you've discussed, a number of GOP 
uh, politicians. What is being pl- you, you go on to say that what is being put in place today is an attempt to smear certain books, ideas, history, and critical thought itself, <clears throat> excuse me, by connecting the latter to socialist ideas and social relations. That, uh, that boogeyman of the menace of socialism still with us. Oh, it's, it, it's profoundly with us. I, I mean, I, I'm shocked to, to hear people like DeSantis and others and, uh, and people who are putting into place many of these educational po- policies claiming that schools are socialist factories. Or, you know, invoking the, the Marxist boogeyman. Oh, teachers who teach this stuff are really Marxist or, you know, they're, they're communist and so forth and so on. I mean, the legacy of the Cold War and that McCarthy, no, McCarthyite notion of oppression is still with us. But their arguments are so empty that they have to fall back upon a logic that, I mean, are, are we really threatened by alleged communists today? I mean, I don't think so. You know, I mean, the, the language doesn't even make sense, but it tells you something about the way in which that form of repression emerges historically and has left an imprint upon, it would seem to me, this this far right in the United States. I mean, remember, that language emerged particularly not only in the 50s, what people forget, it emerged in the 60s. It emerged against the democratization of the universities in the 60s. Those kids were called Marxists. They were called socialists. When the civil rights movement emerges, what happens? Hoover claims they're communists, they're socialists. I mean, it becomes a catch-all term that does two things. One, it doesn't demand an argument or a rebuttal because it seems to speak for itself. And secondly, it seems to suggest there are no ideas that are worthwhile <laughs> you know, that we can actually learn from the socialists, learn from people on the left, learn from people who are fighting for equity and justice. If being a communist means you ask serious questions, and really believe in a society in which no one is poor, wealth is distributed, public goods are available, education is free, and people don't have to suffer from health care, I would think we all should be communists. You know, and of course, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, as head of the FBI uh, back in the late 40s, uh, <clears throat> dubbed those who had gone to fight against uh, fascism in Spain as premature anti-fascists, um, dubbing them they must be communists. You know, I mean, what, what, what do we say about somebody who heads the FBI or the CIA who has engineered, you know, reactionary revolutions in Latin America, Africa, and elsewhere? I mean, are they really the guardians of morality and truth? Are they really the guardians of democracy? Or under the guise of making an appeal to democracy, are they the people who set the stage for eliminating it? And I, and I, I think that you know, if, 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 you, if you study the history, that's why I use the word dirty wars when talking about what's going on in this country. You know, my argument was, as you know, in the paper, I talked about Argentina and Chile and how, how people disappear. And then I talked about how people are disappearing here, but it's taking place. Uh, ideas and books are disappearing. And the notion of disappearance is still a central category to be able to understand the assaults being waged on democracy itself. And I, and I think that what we see here is the need for a new kind of language. I mean, I, I think what's going on in the United States, it's not enough just to say it's fascist oriented. We're seeing a form of domestic terrorism in which almost every form of society is being criminalized. That would be central to the common good. And by not understanding that, we don't understand the breadth and the depth and the connections and the context that basically make it possible. That's, that's, that's basically the essence of my argument. We're caught in a discourse of fragmentation, we're caught in a discourse of isolation, and we're caught in a discourse of demonization and anxiety. It was all the props for the social fabric to work are being attacked and eliminated from schools, the healthcare, the social, social provisions. The, the war against the common good is privatization on steroids. And it's at the heart of what capitalism is about, in that the rich, the, upper, the ruling classes do not want to pay for anything that would suggest it would in some way improve the collective welfare or expand what I call the, the, the economic, political, and economic rights that people basically have every right to. Henry, I want to come back, uh, pick up on a thread that I was thinking about as you were speaking earlier, and that is the, right, the right-wing attack on universities. 
uh, as supposed, I have in brackets in my notes, supposed citadels of leftist ideology. What is the function of that? Uh, You've touched on it a a number of times, but I want to draw it out a little bit. Uh, You know, this branding of going back, you know, decades, of course, already, uh, that the universities have been taken over by radicals, by socialists, and so on, and the function of all that. I mean, the, the ultimate function of that is to associate any attempt to educate students critically with the notion that that is part of a subversive uh, politics. And that subversive politics, as named by these far-right Nazis, is, is basically leftist, student, uh, leftist faculty or faculty who are aligned with socialism. I mean, you know, by the way, you look at any of the empirical evidence that's available about the ideological structure of universities, and almost almost all of them make it clear that the last thing that the American universities are, are citadels of, of, of leftism or socialism. As a matter of fact, if anything, they're citadels of the corporate elite. I mean, most faculty are now non-tenured. Most faculty are casualized. Most faculty, in some ways, working two jobs. Most schools are being censored. Most tenure is being destroyed. I mean, where are these citadels of leftists that they're talking about? And, And again, you know what we have here. We have an attempt to smear the critical democratic function of the university or the university as a public good, a democratic public good, by claiming that they're infected, a, a, a word that the right likes to use when it applies to immigrants, brown people, and others, or trans people. I mean, that it's disease, that this, this ideology is a disease that's eating, the enemy is emerging from within, from within some of our most sacred institutions. It's it's one of the most poisonous and in some way probably enormously uh, 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 suggestive in terms, in, in, in some ways is working, in, in some ways in completely diverse, diverse the, how might I put it, push, pushing people away from the central question, and that is, what are universities for? What are they for? What interests do they serve? And in what way have they been corrupted by corporate interests, by military interests? In what way have universities now taken on the image of, of CEOs, of, of, of major banks, major corporations? I mean, we're really going to criticize universities. Let's talk about what's happened to them since the 1980s. Let's talk about the fact that the no, none of them define themselves as a democratic public good anymore. Very few do that. You know, they talk about excellence and they talk you know, all this nonsense about multiculturalism, but they don't talk about power. They don't talk about educating students to basically further the parameters of democracy. They don't talk about knowledge that basically can be translated into a sense of social responsibility for the common good. They talk about the workforce. They talk about going into finance. They talk about being successful in in terms of having a career in which you make enormous amounts of money. They don't talk about social responsibility. They They don't talk about social justice. And that's why what we now see in Florida, with DeSantis now claiming that any university that deals with questions of diversity and equity won't be funded. I mean, this is a, a perfect example of the transformation of the university into a garbage can, basically, of right-wing propaganda, indoctrination, uh, fascist right-wing ideology. That's all it is. And, and it's not just fascist right-wing ideology, of course, because there's been there's been a well, a corporate liberal agenda as well uh, that has scuttled in, in, you know, prominent universities have scuttled, scuttled critical thinking around a liberal arts curriculum, a core curriculum, uh, and its replacement with uh, technical thinking uh, versus uh, critical thinking. Now, I, you know, let, let me qualify this. Look, the neoliberal university has been around for a long time. It's been it's certainly since then. It, 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 it sort of went on steroids in the 1980s under Reagan. We know that. But what I'm trying to say is not that, for instance, the neoliberal university has not had an effect in terms of what we're seeing with regard to the outlandish right-wing policies that are now basically destroying higher education. They're not modifying it, Alan. They're destroying it. And my argument is that neoliberalism set the ground for this because basically they ignored... Over, overlooked, refused to engage the university in terms of its democratic public purpose. They turned them into corporate factories, adjuncts of, of corporations. 
And in many ways, there was no language there to fight what was eventually coming. And that was a neoliberalism that basically now aligned itself and helped to reinforce and produce what I call a fascist politics. And the universities now, it seems to me in many ways, they seem incapable of responding to this because in fact they helped to create it. 608, we have a few minutes left if you want to get in with a, a brief call, question, comment. 608-256-2001. In the latter part of your essay, Henry Giroux, you have a section entitled To Fight Fascism, Fascism, We Must Resist the Politics of Disappearance. Um, you say that a, <clears throat> excuse me, a politics of disappearance is the thread that connects the plethora of fascist assaults on public and higher education. That's just but one example. Talk about that some. What is needed? I, I think that among, uh, look, there's a couple of things being implied there, and I, think, I, I try to sort of tease them out in the essay. One is that history is power. You know, if you understand your history and you can locate yourself and you understand the history of, uh, and the narratives that define the current situations in which we find ourselves we're better equipped to be able to fight the injustices that are emerging and seem to suggest that uh, they don't have a history. Secondly, it seems to me we need to recognize that memory has become a form of miseducation. Thirdly, we need to recognize something that is relatively new in my estimation, and that is that education is not only schooling, education is about all these apparatuses that have an enormous grip and, and represent an enormous force in shaping collective consciousness. Education now is largely waged by disimagination machines. But more importantly, it seems to me to move away from simply associating power with domination and associating power also with resistance, education is central to politics. Education is not just about resistance, not just about repression. It's also about awakening people to both their needs, their sense of collective agency, the possibility for collective struggle, and to keep alive those images, those institutions, those ideas that offer both a language and a set of institutions that are capable of mobilizing people into collective action. And I, and I think in, in that sense, that's where I want to move away from a politics of critique to a politics of hope. The tools that the right is now monopolizing are not only their tools. They have the power to, in a sense, use those tools more powerfully. But those tools are also available in some ways in, in, the, in the fringes of this society to young people, to people like you, you know, to opposition, the oppositional press, the oppositional media. And it seems to me that what needs to be done here is there needs to be a collective movement in which we can all recognize what this problem is, how to name it, give different people opportunities to narrate it for us and to bring people together so that consciousness can in some way be married to collective action. We need to unify the various groups in this country that are fighting against this stuff. It's not enough to simply be an environmentalist. It's not enough to simply believe in women's rights. It's not enough just to believe we have to overcome trans rights. All those rights are impossible. But if you live, if you only address trans rights, and don't address racism, you're not in a democracy anymore. We've got to have an umbrella called radical democracy, democratic socialism, that brings people together so that we can see that all these movements in terms of their particular injustices are important, but they need to be connected to a larger narrative that is capable of moving people in which people can recognize their own needs and recognize themselves in this language in a way that both changes their consciousness and energizes them to all of a sudden assume uh, a, a sense of personal and collective agency that has been taken away from them. You say that um, under current circumstances, reviving the political and moral imagination is more crucial than ever. You often talk about imagination, imagining a possible possible futures. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, it, it, it seems to me one of the traps that we often find ourselves in was echoed very, very clearly by Margaret Thatcher. And that, you know the phrase, there's no alternative. And, and I think that one of the strongest ideological conditions of neoliberalism, of capitalism, of fascism, is the presumption that that's all there is. 
that's a way of normalizing despair. It's a way of normalizing injustice. It's a way of normalizing exploitation. Normalization is the ideological glue that holds all these elements together. When you think you cannot escape from it, when there's no hope, you either become cynical or you become complicitous or you become an active uh, advocate of hate and division. And so I, I think what I mean when I say the radical imagination is how do you think beyond this? How do you think about the forces that created it? How do you think about a society that rejects these premises based on, on wealth and the concentration of power and greed and a, a kind of social Darwinism, a war of all against all, the privatization of everything? I'm sorry, that's not the world that I want to envision. And that shouldn't be the world that people want, want, want to live in. And it shouldn't be a world in which they think there are no other possibilities. If we can break through that, if we can attack the way in which this nonsense, this regressive uh, notion of dehumanization and exploitation and hate is normalized, we're on the right track. You know, Henry Giroux, you, you <clears throat> excuse me, you talk about the importance of rewriting the past in line with the imperatives of economic, racial, and social justice as a fundamental political and pedagogical task, certainly the right wing understands that. That is, uh, it informs their offensive, their ideological offensive. They don't want that. I, I mean, look, one of the things that I've been saying for years, uh, really, maybe too much, is that the right was much smarter about the role of culture and the role of ideas in fighting against, in fighting for the things that they believed in. The left has been too structured in matters of economic domination and has refused in some ways to take seriously the, the symbolic realm, the realm of education, as a really crucial site of struggle. They haven't done that. I mean, if you go back to the Powell memo in, the, in 1971, where he says very clearly, this fight has to be done in the realm of ideas. What did they create? They created all kinds of institutions from the dreadful Heritage Foundation to a whole range of them. They put them on campuses. They worked to take over the universities. They talked about creating charter schools. Where was the left in, in all of this? I mean, it isn't that there weren't leftist movements that took this seriously, but you know, this was not a left that acted like Stanley Aronowitz. This was not a left that echoed Ellen Woolis. This was not a left that echoed Tom Hayden. You know, a whole series of Cornell West in its present moment. I mean, this was not a left that said, hey, look, if we're really going to fight this. You want to speak to people in a language they understand. You want to fight for institutions that take ideas seriously. You want to, in some way, make sure that people in universities are connecting what they do to public life. You want to make sure that ideas matter in ways that are both accessible, rigorous, and energizing. Henry Giroux, we have a few minutes left. <clears throat> Sorry, folks. Talk for a moment about your your recent work. That is, in the late, I don't even know, you You bring them out so quickly sometimes. I'm one, I said the latest, and then you might correct me. But, <clears throat> excuse me, insurrections, education in an age of counter-revolutionary politics, which just came out in paperback in January a few months ago. I mean... Yeah, th this is a book in which I'm, I'm trying to make it clear that what we have going on in the United States and a number of other countries is really a counter-revolution. It's a counter-revolution against the 60s. It's a counter-revolution against democracy. It's a counter-revolution against justice. And central to that revolution is the realm of education. And that uh, people who are really concerned about education, whether they're liberals or whether they're on the left, if they're people who really believe that justice matters and we need to fight for it, then they're going to have to look at education as being central to politics and go through that in ways to try to understand what it means to resurrect the importance of ideas linked to justice and equity and to resurrect those institutions that make democracy possible. Talk about, there's that key word in the title, insurrections, plural. Why that? I, I, because I think that insurrections takes place on multiple fronts. And I think insurrections is not just about domination. I think there's a moment in a people's history when an insurrection is absolutely warranted in order to overthrow something of such enormous evil, something so tragic, something so perilous, so poisonous, that people have to rewrite the rules of what, what, what politics is about. 
in wounds that basically never escape from the dictates of social responsibility and justice and ethics. And I think, for instance, I, I mean, I think that in many ways, you know, uh, we, we might say, look, what would that mean today in terms of beyond the, the, the sense of producing various cultural apparatuses that spread the word? We have to go back to the maybe to the collective strike. How do you shut the country down in ways that produce an enormous opportunity to educate people? How do you bring people together in, at the local level to fight off these right wing these right wing lunatics who are closing down libraries and taking off taking over schools? I mean, firing teachers, threatening school board members. How do we fight against the culture of violence? I mean, we need to create two things. One. There has to be a nationalist movement in the interest of democracy. And secondly, there has to be an international movement in defense of public goods and democracy. We have to learn from each other. This, this, this poison is not simply in the United States. This poison is international and it's spreading. All you have to do is look at the, the recent piece that came out talking about the, the um, decline of democracy globally. I mean, stuff is frightening. The decline of media freedom is frightening. The decline of, of journalism, critical journalism, all the spheres that keep, that provide the echo sphere, if I may, of democracy are being choked off. They're being diminished. What we need to do is talk about an insurrection in some fundamental way that doesn't give that word simply to the right. You know, we have, you know, a minute or so left. Final words for our listeners today, Henry Giroux. Yeah, let me say this. As bad as the situation is, there's always the possibility of change. And I am enormously heightened and, and embraced in ways that give me hope by what I see young people doing in this country. People fighting against gun violence, people fighting for trans rights, people fighting for the environment, young people marching in the streets, people in unions, people in, in education who would define their own conservative unions and closing schools down. And I think this fight has to continue. We have to learn from other youth movements across, across the globe, but we have to come together to think about ways in which those efforts not only exist at the local level, but can have an enormous impact at the political level. Henry Giroux, I want to thank you ever so much once again. I also want to take, thank Chuck for engineering today, Jade for producing. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be... Uh, Speaking with you next week. Thank you very much, Henry Giroux. Oh, thank you, Alan, for having me on. Pre-recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media.